Listen, when I tell you to, to recite the verse, shh, when it comes time, you're going to say, not this man, but Barabbas, all right? So I'm going to read, and then when it comes to that verse or that section in verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas, you all will say that together. Here we go. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Now Barabbas was a robber. You may be seated. As we learned last week, Pontius Pilate put Jesus Christ on trial because the Jewish people, the religious leaders, brought Jesus to him. And then Pilate, feeling a little guilty, feeling like this man, Jesus Christ, this God-man, was unjustly treated, he figured he would do them a favor. And so he brought him before the people and said, I'm going to give you a choice. You guys have a custom that one person can go free. So I'm going to give you this murderer, Barabbas, whose name actually church tradition tells us is Jesus Barabbas. You want Jesus Barabbas, the murderer, or you want Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews? And all the people said, they all cried again, not this man, but Barabbas. Every person must make a choice when it comes to Jesus Christ. Each and every one of you here must come to your own decision about Jesus Christ. I can't make that decision for you. You can't make that decision for your friends. And unfortunately, what we've seen in youth group is that there are some people that belong here that are no longer here. Why is that? It's because, frankly, people have made their decision about Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying everybody. Obviously, some people have sports. Some people have things that they have to do. But there are some that no longer are walking with the Lord. And we always talked about these kinds of days, especially you that are older in youth group. And we talked about, like, there are going to be people. Not everyone here is going to be here at the end of the year. It's just the way it is. And that's because people make their own decision when it comes to Jesus Christ. So I, what I would like all of us to do this evening is to put aside every ounce of bitterness you have towards the church, every ounce of bitterness you have towards youth group or your Christian school or your homeschool or whatever, and for a second, let's evaluate who is Jesus Christ to you. Because that's what it comes down to. It's not about how the church has treated you, how your friends have treated you, or how it's so clicky or whatever. It's not even how I have treated you. This is a question of what are you to do with Jesus Christ? There is something about the cross that is offensive, and it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that some people do not want to come to church. Why? Because church is not the place where people are just drawn in and we're going to have fancy lights and, and cool-looking videos and people are going to be hip and whatever. Church is the place where we learn how to go out into the world in spiritual battle. And listen, I'm, when I say spiritual battle, I'm not saying we're like supposed to be like, oh, it's so like terrible and stuff. But no, recognizing there are people that need saving. You are Christian soldiers, not like fighting with guns and swords and whatever, but you guys are fighting the spiritual realms where people are taken captive by the enemy, by Satan himself. 
Satan wants to deceive people in the world. He wants them to believe that the world is more fulfilling than Jesus Christ. Satan wants you to make the choice of Barabbas the murderer over Jesus Christ. Satan wants you to think that if you go out and have sex, that will be more fulfilling than what Jesus has to offer you in marriage. The church teaches what the Bible preaches, but the world teaches whatever they feel like teaching, whatever sounds good. So when you come to youth group, sometimes you'll hear things that you don't want to hear. And that's not because, um, that's be not because it's untrue. It's not because uh, I don't like you or whatever. It's simply because we are preaching the cross. And I think in some regard, the cross has lost its meaning because we see it all the time. But the cross will always be offensive in its true meaning. For some people, the cross will be a, a symbol of hope, and to others, it will be an eyesore. I mean, even today, just recently this summer, at Ground Zero, speaking of 9-11, we have that symbol, we have a cross formed by the cross beams that were uh, taken from the Twin Towers, and that had been a symbol of hope 13 years ago for people, whether they were Christian or not. People look to that cross as a symbol of hope. But over the years, as people become comfortable, all of a sudden now we have the atheist community complaining about we have a religious symbol in a public arena and that's not okay. Why do they complain? Is there anything really that offensive about a vertical beam and a horizontal beam from the Twin Towers? No, but it's the meaning behind it, and that is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross. Why did he die? Whether you're here tonight and you believe that Jesus Christ was God or not, everyone has to come to a conclusion about who most people believe is one of the most significant people in all of human history. While I was in England, Joey Rosek was witnessing to uh, one of the people out there, one of the atheists, and they asked, why do Christians always wear a cross? Isn't that kind of morbid? Isn't that weird? And Joey just explained, listen, for us, it might be kind of weird, like if you're not a Christian, and, and for people that don't have any significance behind it, it's, it's kind of like an electric chair is hung around your neck. But notice, Jesus is not hanging on that cross anymore. And that's because we have the hope where the cross tells us and shows us that our sins themselves have been nailed to that cross. And now we can walk in newness of life. For us as Christians, it is a symbol of hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Have we as Christians forgotten the meaning of the cross? Has it lost its power in your life? Have you forgotten that the fact that Jesus Christ was wounded 2,000 years ago means that any wound you experience in this life will only be temporary? You do not have to have a permanent wound because he was wounded. He was bruised for our iniquities and by his stripes, by his wounds, we are now healed. It doesn't have a lasting effect any longer. So 
If you say that Jesus Christ was just a man, you don't believe anything beyond that, I'm not going to tell you what to believe right now. But I will ask you to, to honestly consider, like I said, what most people believe is one of the most important people of all of human history. Hear what Napoleon Bonaparte said about Jesus Christ. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. H.G. Wells, the famous author who wrote The Time Machine, War of the Worlds, he said this, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Even Gandhi said this, a man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. If you don't say that Jesus was God, at least admit what mere men have admitted about him. Now, if you say that he is God and you admit that he is God, then you must also choose to serve either God or man. You cannot serve both. And what always strikes me in this passage is the illusion it brings back to the Old Testament because not one person spoke up. And you would figure if Jesus Christ is on trial and there are at least some people who believed in him, there are at least 5,000 people that ate from him in that miracle of feeding the 5,000 or whatever, at least one person, the woman with the flow of blood, at least one person, the lame man, the paralyzed dude, the guy who was blind, someone would stand up and say, I want Jesus Christ, not Barabbas. But not one person is recorded to say anything. How is that even possible? Well, it reminds me of 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah was on the battle of Mount Carmel and he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Why is it that Elijah says, listen, if the Lord is God, choose him. If Baal's God, choose him. Not one person says anything. That's because the people wanted to have both the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Baal at the same time. Well, we can look at them in history and say, well, that's silly. That's, why would they do that? I would have said something. Well, really, would you have, would you have really said something? Because maybe... You might be in that place too, like I had been for so long, where I wanted both the world and God. I wanted Jesus and something else too. I wanted Jesus and my sin. I wanted Jesus and my success. I wanted Jesus and my dreams and aspirations and, and my career and my idols. You see, whether you admit it or not, we all worship something. We all devote our lives to something. You cannot live a life where you're not devoted to anything. Just imagine what that would look like. I'm going to wake up and not do anything at all because I have no purpose in life and I'm going to walk around as if I had no purpose in life. Human beings need to have purpose and everyone works towards something. And whatever you work towards the most, that is the thing that you worship. Whether you use the word or not, 
That is your act of worship. Worship simply means giving worth to something. So some people worship their car and they wash it and wax it and they saved up all their money for it. They go out racing with it, whatever. What happens when the car breaks? My baby, no, it's everything. Some people all put all of their time and effort into a relationship. What happens when they break up? We all know the couple that they only spend time with each other. They ditched you. They don't talk to their friends. They don't even talk to their family anymore. They only spend time with each other. What happens when they break up? They are devastated. Because it's not just we had a breakup. It's my life is over now. You were my everything. You see, people worship things without even realizing it. And so you cannot have both Jesus as your Lord and the things of this world as your Lord. In America, I think we're spoiled with choices. You go to the supermarket and it's not, I want peanut butter. It's which brand of peanut butter? Do you want chocolate peanut butter? You want almond butter? You want coconut butter? All these different butters. And we're spoiled with so many different choices. And because of that, we're kind of like, well, I'm not going to make a choice. Well, even if you decide not to make a choice, you are making a choice. And that's what these people fail to realize is that when they were talking or when, when Elijah was talking on the, the battle of Mount Carmel and he said, choose this day whom you will serve, the people answer not a word. But that itself was a choice. They chose to remain silent. Listen very carefully. There will be times in your life where people will ask you what you believe about Jesus Christ. And it is not enough to remain silent. You will have to say what you believe about Jesus. You will have to be honest about your decision. These people then take a stand to worship the only one worthy of worship. And so it was when Pilate put forth Jesus, Barabbas, and Jesus Christ. Not one person made a choice. Do you find the Christian life hard to live? You find it difficult. Perhaps that might be because you're trying to follow God while still holding on to the things of this world. You know, there's an illustration I heard years ago. I think Chuck Smith said it, but either way, when terrible people, poachers, I guess they're called, want to capture monkeys, what they would do is, I don't know how Chuck Smith knows this. Maybe he was a poacher before he was a Christian. But what they do is they'll have a jar and they'll put treats in it. And the monkey will go and take the treat and uh, the jar itself is, is clamped down to the ground or roped down or whatever. And when the monkey reaches in, its hand can go in, but when it grabs the treats, it can't pull it out because the, the mouth isn't big enough to remove his hand. And so the monkey stays trapped willingly because he will not let go of what's inside. It's the same thing with us. We can find the Christian life so hard to live when we fail to let go of the things that won't last anyway. Really, think about it. What are you afraid of giving up? I'm afraid God's going to make me give up this or give up that. I won't be able to watch this TV. I won't be able to watch my rated R movies. Who cares? I'm not saying stop watching all rated R movies. That's not what I'm saying. Passion, Passion of the Christ is rated R. Whatever. I don't watch rated R movies. But that's, you know, that's another discussion for another day. Either way, there will be things that the Holy Spirit will prompt on your heart and say, you need to give this up. 
Oh, what's so bad about giving that up? I mean, what are you going to lose? Really? It's all going to perish anyway. Some of you might say, well, I, maybe I can go to church on Sundays, but I can go partying on the weekends. Well, maybe, you know, I can, even though I didn't go to Impact on Friday, I'll go to this party and then on, on Sunday I'll be at church, so that's okay. Even if you're not saying that, your friends are saying that. You cannot both serve God and serve the world. It is impossible. You've, you're on one side or the other. If you're in both, you are not with Jesus because he says you're either for me or against me. If you find yourself lost, that might be because you are trying too hard to stay in the world. You're trying too hard to stay with all of your friends that you don't click with anymore because they speak about dumb things, dirty things, whatever. And you don't know what to do. It's like, Lord, I want to follow you, but I just, I can't give this up right now. Well, you know what? We would all be a little less lost if we had both eyes on the cross rather than cross-eyed on the world and Christ. I'll say that again. We'd all be a little less lost if we had both eyes on the cross rather than cross-eyed on the world and Christ. If you're cross-eyed, you got your eyes in two places. You can't walk in any direction. You have your eyes on the cross. You know where to go because the cross implies that Jesus has gone before you. He has paved that way so you know exactly where to go. You're to walk like Christ so that you can obtain the life that he lived. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Here's a question. Why does Pilate flog Jesus if he knows that he's innocent? Well, actually, this scourging that happens in verse 1, many commentators believe that he went through two scourgings. The, uh, two whippings. The first one was kind of just like an insult. So they didn't beat you to death. They didn't make you feel like what you see in the Passion of the Christ or whatever. This was basically to teach you to never defy the authorities ever again. So maybe Pilate was thinking, even though I think he's innocent, maybe what I'll do to appease the crowd is I'll flog Jesus so that people have sympathy for him. But he failed to realize the blindness of these Jewish leaders how blind they were to the fact that Jesus was innocent and they were willing to crucify him. It wasn't just like, well, maybe they don't know that he's innocent. Maybe they'll feel bad after, you know, we do some whippings and stuff and then afterwards they'll let him go. But what Pilate thought was being merciful was actually compromise. Pilate thought he was being merciful by flogging Jesus, but it was compromise. Him failing to take that stance itself was a a stance. It reminds me, reminds me of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. Remember, Old Testament prophecy about Jesus it says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Do you ever wonder why Jesus was tortured? 
why isn't it that he was he wasn't just killed I mean really did he have to be tortured to death this doesn't really make sense to me until I remember the intention of these people these wicked people was that they wanted Jesus Christ shamed they wanted the God of the universe to be brought low and themselves to be raised up it wasn't enough for them to kill them in their eyes they wanted him to be embarrassed and we look at that and say how can you have such cruel heartless and wicked people but then I remember my own sin because this is exactly what our sin does our sin is basically a statement to God saying you know what God I'm glad you've done all your rules and I'm glad you have all the things and your plans and whatever but I think I can do it better sin is seeking your own way rather than seeking the Lord's way the wages of sin is death now listen I'm not saying you guys are as wicked as those leaders I'm not saying that but I am saying that the fact that you are not like those religious leaders is the grace of God and nothing more the fact that I am not a murderer the fact that I'm not out I mean we'll watch the news sometimes and we'll look at them like how can you be so wicked how can you be so cruel you watch on TV and you hear about these abortions and you watch these things going on in the world and say how can you be so depraved but then I remember if it was not for the grace of God there I go too you see we have to have the heart that Jesus has for his people who said father forgive them for they know not what they do I'm not saying your sin is as wicked but I'm saying the fact that your sin isn't as wicked is the grace of God and nothing more look at verse 7 the Jews answered him we have a law and according to our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. See, Pilate was afraid. He was superstitious. But then we look at this like, why did Pilate even listen to the whims of the people? Why was he so concerned? Well, that's because he had a bad reputation with the people. I mean, there's a time where he was like, I'm going to bring in a, a, an image of the emperor into the holy city. And the Jewish people went crazy. Like, you can't do that. This is our holy city. So they protested. They laid at, in front of the, the temple, in front of the image, and they had their necks out, stretched out, saying, basically, you can, you can kill us if you want to. Hundreds of these people came out, saying, you can kill us if you want to, but we're not going to have this image in our holy city. So Pilate was already unpopular from that. He was unpopular because he put pagan gods on coins. So he had a bad reputation, and he feared man, and so he feared that his position would be taken away if this was another thing that could be held against him. Verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at, at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Here's the thing where we need to take confidence that God is in control even behind the scenes, especially behind the scenes. Ultimately, even though as terrible as this is, as horrifying as this story is, this was Jesus' plan, God the Father's plan, so that we 
the world could be redeemed from our sins. Jesus understood as wicked as these people were and as terrible as it was how this plan was carried out, God was sovereign so that he turned the worst act of human history, the death of God, into the redemption of the world. Do you realize that you deserve to die for your sins? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You ever think about that? Like, why do people have to die for their sins? Because if we don't recognize how bad our sin is, we're not going to feel bad when we sin. Well, I guess it's, you know, everyone sins. And so, so what if I lied? So what if I looked at some junk on the internet? I mean, every, all my friends do it anyway. So I, what, what's really the big deal if I curse now and then? And like, if I go on Twitter later on tonight and I post something I probably shouldn't. You know, everyone sins. It's not a big deal. But you realize our sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. But why? Why is the wages of sin death? I've heard it said this way. Imagine I gave you a watch. And let's say this watch was a priceless heirloom of mine. It was given by my great-grandmother, Yoko Ono. And <laughs> that's not my great-grandmother. They don't even get the joke because they're not <laughs> from that era. Anyway, look up the Beatles later on, hashtag. Um, let's say I gave you this priceless heirloom. It was a watch. And you got it. You don't have any money. You're like, oh, this is awesome. I'm just going to borrow it for a little bit. And you broke it. Like, oh, well, that's bad. So now you owe me a watch, number one, but you don't even have money to fix it. So even if you fix that watch, let's say you borrowed money from someone else, you got the watch fixed and you gave it to me, not only do you owe me that watch, but you, in a sense, owe me a new watch because you broke the one I gave it to you. It was priceless. It was, it was an heirloom. It was handed down from my family. So even if you give me a new watch, it's not really the same. So you owe me the old watch and a new watch on top of that. Now bring it full circle. God has given you your life. It is not your own. You didn't pop yourself into existence. Just in the same way that your father and mother gave you life and you owe them respect because they didn't have to, you know, procreate and you arrive in this world. You owe God your life because it's not your own. He gave you a life and gave you a purpose to live out. But because of sin, that life has been marred beyond recognition. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is wrongdoing. We all hurt other people and hurt God when we sin. Because God intended you to carry out good purposes with your life, and you ruined it with your sin. So now, since you've ruined that life, not only do you owe God that life, but in a sense you owe him a new life. And that's why Jesus Christ came into this world not only just to come into the world and die for our sins, but he had to live a perfect life in place of the life that we should have lived. So that when we accept Jesus' sacrifice, now it's not just a life for a life, but it's a life lived that takes the place of the life that we could not live in our place. Thus, why it is death. And at least that's one theory. There's other theories. We're not going to talk about them today. So verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. How sad is this? How sad is this that the Jews are crying out, saying that you're not Caesar's friend. They're, the Jewish people are more the friend of Caesar than Pilate, than a Roman citizen, than a Roman leader. 
Does this describe you? You're looking to let Jesus reign in your life, but you're never taking action. Pilate sought to release Jesus, looking for opportunities. Maybe I can get him out. Maybe I can free him, but never actually actualizing those opportunities. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to let Jesus reign in my life. I, I'm going to, you know, today I'm going to stop sinning. I'm just going to stop doing it, and then I'll let God reign. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's not a matter of you stopping sin. It's a matter of you trusting in Jesus. Allowing Jesus, making the, the decision. It's not like Pilate, I mean, Pilate, really? What he should have done is said, I'm going to let Jesus go. Not look for the perfect opportunity at the right time when everything's in order, then I'm going to let Jesus go. In the same way, it's not about you cleaning up your life, stopping sin, and then in, when you're ready, you're going to come to church and you're going to be able to mix in with all the other Christians. Instead, you need to admit that Jesus is the Lord of your life and allow him to change you from the inside out. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then, Jesus, then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. You see, the Jewish people didn't want Pilate to say, Here's the king of the Jews. They're like, no, no, no. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. We don't want him to actually put up a sign that says he is the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. Maybe as a way to just kind of get back to the Jewish leaders because he was bitter. He's like, you know what? I don't even care because I'm bitter because you guys are crucifying this innocent man. So I'm going to put there what I think should be there. The deep irony in this is that the instrument of Jesus' humiliation was the very thing that proclaimed his kingship. It says in verse 20 in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was in a prominent place where the sign was held up, the king of the Jews. And it was written in all these different languages, proclaiming to the world that the king has come. The world could see that following Jesus means leaving your sin at the cross. That's what it means to trust in the Lord. That's what it means to follow God. And you see, in our day, we have an old cross and a new cross. Heard A.W. Tozer describe it this way. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. You see, if you were planning, let's just say that you're with God before the foundations of the world. It's like, 
hey, let's make a plan for you to come down to the earth. You know, make a visit, just check things out. Okay. We're going to have, you know, streets of gold come down, maybe some, like, futuristic helicopters circling the skies, maybe a rainbow just for special effects. And, like, we're going to make sure that everyone knows that God has come onto the scene. But the, the, the cross shows that the way to God is to sacrifice your sin. It's to see a holy God, an innocent God, up on that tree, sacrificed for you and me. But what's interesting is people assume today that what we have to do is we really got to go out there and present the gospel in a way that's going to really reach people and people are going to get excited and like, yes, we want to make the gospel relevant and speak their language, but never doling down what happened 2,000 years ago. It all goes back to the fact that an innocent man who himself was God was crucified on that cross. And we should have been there. That should have been us up on that cross, but he took our place. And sometimes that becomes dulled over time because we need something new, we need something exciting, but we can't dumb, uh, dumb down or dull down the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is to leave your sin at that tree. Not to carry it and improve it and take your old life and improve it and work on it and make yourself better and improve yourself and have a happy life and we don't come to worship to worship God. We really do it for ourselves. How many of you have seen that video? But the message of the cross is that we need to die to ourselves and live unto God. It's as Paul said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. What did he say? He said, nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Say that with me. Nailed the passions and desires. Nailed the passions and desires. Where are we, where are we nailing it to? We're nailing it to the cross and crucified them there. Now maybe you're thinking today, well, Accepting Jesus means giving up my sin? What if I don't want to? What if I really like what I'm doing right now? Well, remember that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Just as the Jewish people said, we don't have a king, but Caesar, they were still serving man. If you cast off God, you'll be serving man, ultimately. You'll be rejecting God and be worshiping not the creator, but something created. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in the world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. He says, I don't even care about this world anymore. He says, my interest in this world has been crucified. The minute that Jesus died on that tree, my interest in this world has also left me. And the world doesn't care about me anymore either. I'm worthless to the world. Do you have value to the world? Does the world look at you and say, we really need that person on our team? Not Paul. Paul's like, I'm worthless because I don't do anything that's going to prohibit my race. Everything I do. Like if people look at you like, you know what? That person still has that sinful passion, that sinful desire. They have that appeal and we can use that person to promote the world. But not Paul. He's like, I'm weak. Without God, I am nothing. I can't do anything without him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but without Christ, I have nothing. So he's worthless to the world, 
but alive to Christ. Verse 23. We're going to go a little bit faster to close out here. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now this tunic was without seam woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. For whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day that the Jews asked Pilate that the leg, their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. What is he saying here? There is so much imagery here. If we, we can spend weeks just in this passage alone because there are so many scriptures that John, uh, John the Apostle is bringing to our memory from the Old Testament. If you have Jewish friends that don't believe in the New Testament, show them these verses that throughout the book of uh, Zechariah, throughout the Psalms, there are so many places in the Old Testament that show that one day there would be a Messiah that would be crucified just like this. And so John is just like overwhelmed with so much imagery that's happening, not only from what's, what's happening before him, but the imagery it points to in the Bible. They're dividing his garments. Not one of his bones will be broken. And they would typically do that to make sure the person was dead. Especially because it's about to be the, uh, the, the Passover and they don't want on the Passover to have this, this guy dying. And so that their rationale is, well, we want to kill these guys quickly. So they're going to break their legs. But they saw Jesus was already dead, so they didn't break his bones. Symbolizing the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, I believe it is. That says not one of the bones of the Passover lamb should be broken as a foreshadowing of what happened with Jesus. So all of this is written that you may believe and you have the proof that Jesus Christ really is who he claimed to be. All right, in conclusion, let's read this last passage. And this will be our ultimate takeaway for the entire chapter. So pay attention here. This is very important. After this. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, remember another person like Pilate who's scared and doesn't want to say anything, part of the Sanhedrin, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who, came, who at first came to Jesus, Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had, been, had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Here's where we're going to... Here's where we're going to bring it all together now. So everyone look up here. Joseph of Arimathea is a character that you might be able to relate with. Not the fact that he was rich, but the fact that he was a religious leader who was highly esteemed, yet he was scared. He's just like, just honestly, I don't want to say anything. What if they're going to crucify me too? My position, everything that I have got going for me. There will be times in your life where you're going to be confronted with whether or not you're going to compromise Christ. So we might picture him as an introvert, scared, timid, not wanting to say anything. But what I love about this is how Joseph of Arimathea, even though he had been a person who had been afraid of the Jews and secretly a follower of Jesus, at this point, he took the body of Jesus, going up to Pilate, asked him for permission, can I take the body of Jesus when he was going to be thrown into a regular, you know, every, everyday person's tomb with everyone else, just a pile. He asked for him to be buried in his rich man's tomb. Well, what does this teach us? What does this tell us? Well, first of all, just because you're rich, just because you're, you're like highly esteemed and you have a proper position does not mean you're going to have the boldness that only the Holy Spirit can give you. Some of you are thinking, if I only acquire enough knowledge about evangelism, if I only gain more experience, then I'll become bold for Jesus. No, you can be the most famous person in the world, but still be terrified of what people think of you. So that only comes by the Holy Spirit. Boldness only comes by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, even if you're introverted, even if you're timid, you still need to give Jesus his proper place. And that's exactly what Joseph of Arimathea did. Even though he was introverted, timid, scared, he still gave Jesus his proper place, his place in the tomb that was unused, that was prophesied about that he would be buried with the rich. Though he lived with the poor, he was buried with the rich. Fulfilling scripture, he still did the right thing. Along with Nicodemus, who came, to first, came at first to Jesus by night, scared about what people are going to think. At the end of the day, he gained the boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit to go up to Pilate. Maybe you have been terrified then, but you said, you know what? Even though I'm scared, the Holy Spirit speaking to me, and I know I have to do this. So ultimately, whether it's a blessing blitz, whether it's a challenge by your friends, whether people are saying, hey, why don't you go up to that person and share Jesus with that person? Ultimately, it just comes down to you obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. I can tell you, hey, why don't you memorize a chapter of the Bible? Why don't you memorize a verse or whatever? But this has to come from the desire to please Jesus and nothing else. Otherwise, it's just legalism. It's just doing things to look righteous before men. But you're still caring about, about what people think about you. In order to really see change in our world, I mean, think about it. There are so many people here. Um, there are so many people that are not here anymore. They're in the world. What's going to bring them back? It's not by being legalistic and saying, well, we're going to make sure we're talking to one person who hasn't like been around for a long time. It'll only happen by prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, prompting people to show acts of kindness and to bring them back in love.
That's it. So the question is before you, will you choose Jesus or will you choose your own way? That's a question that everyone has to answer. And it's left up to you.